So, yeah, so I, I went through these rules, you know, I, I compiled them, I wrote code uh, that sort of, um, you know, formalized them, and then I used them to develop a program that, uh, given a noun and uh, given its gender, attempts to um, use these rules to explain why this noun takes this specific, specific gender. You're listening to Speaking of Language, a podcast recorded at the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. Each week, we explore a topic related to language pedagogy and second language acquisition. This week on Speaking of Language. Simon Zuberich gives us a look into his custom applications for language learning. Welcome to a new episode of Speaking of Language. I'm Angelica Kramer, the director of the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. And I'm Sam Lupowitz, the LRC's media manager. We are excited to welcome back Simon Zuberich. Simon is a senior educational technologist, linguist, and language educator, and we will talk today about corpora, data, and their application and validity in the language classroom. Welcome back to Speaking of Language, Simon. Hey, uh, good afternoon. It is awesome to be here with you guys. Uh, thanks for having me back. Absolutely. Simon, before we dive into all things data and corpora, please remind our listeners a little bit about you, your background, your path with languages, and the things that you currently do for work. I started out as a graduate student on the PhD track in Germanic literatures and cultures. And that And that was at the University of Illinois um, in Chicago. Um, and as I was uh, sort of working my way through the program, I discovered that I was really interested in uh, the questions of language acquisition, uh, language learning, language teaching, uh, pedagogy. Um, and before I sort of knew it, I got so involved um, in um, that area of studies um, that I decided to change tracks. And um, I did complete my um, education with the German language program uh, with a master's um, in with a focus in uh, second language acquisition studies. Mm -hmm. um, and then I sort of moved into um, applied linguistics uh, nice. full time, uh, where I also uh, completed my degree um, also with a master's. Um, and that was um, simply because the program at the time uh, did not offer a PhD track. Mm. Um, and so while I was working on uh, things related to applied linguistics, um, I ran into computer-assisted language learning, and um, I, I just got hooked. I, um, I got really interested in uh, how technology can be used in the language classroom uh, to answer, um, to address specific uh, pedagogical problems, um, how these um, technologies function, um, how we can um, have students work with them in the most um, sort of um, uh, useful way. Mm -hmm. um, and over time, um, as I began looking at these technologies more and more critically, as I was learning more and more about these things, I um, started coming up with problems that are not very easily addressed uh, with the technologies that are available. And so I started looking for, you know, custom solutions. 
um, which um, just sort of organically led me to um, start thinking about how do you like how do these things work? How do you develop these yeah. things? Um, you know, on your own. Um, you know, whether um, you can uh, you know customize them, or maybe just like write code on on, on your own. I mean, that time I was not a programmer. I did not know anything uh, about uh, about programming, about writing code. So. Um, uh, so I kind of, you know, stayed, uh, stayed at that, um, level. So, uh, that sort of interest in computer system language learning and language technologies has led me to, uh, my thesis, uh, where I looked at, um, the effectiveness of, uh, speech technologies in the training of, um, oral proficiency. Um, finished the thesis, uh, completed the program. I was able to um, get my current position um, at Columbia, where I nice. am today uh, helping instructors uh, and sometimes students as well answer interesting curricular and pedagogical questions that sort of come about and emerge in the foreign language classroom. Um, and at the same time, I am also pursuing uh, my interests in language technology uh, by working at a graduate degree, yet another one, uh, this time in <laughs> computational linguistics at mm. uh, the CUNY Graduate Center here in New York City. Nice. Awesome. Very Sounds cool. like you know how was to that, keep it? yourself busy. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've never had problems with that. <laughs> you guys know it. <laughs> So you started touching on this a little bit, but could you talk a bit more about how you became interested in corpora and using data to support language teaching and learning? Uh, yeah, sure. So, um, right. So as I mentioned, um, as I uh, began uh, sort of looking more critically at the questions um, that are sort of present in the field of computer system language learning, um, a lot of these have to do with, uh, you know, how do you design and, uh, you know, develop, um, you know, various technologies uh, that can be then used later to um, address specific uh, pedagogical uh, questions and uh, situations. Um, and, you know, in order to begin developing um, such technologies, in most cases, uh, you, need, you need data. Um, mm -hmm. so, uh, you know, for instance, um, as a, so going back to, uh, my time in Chicago as a graduate student in applied linguistics, um, I, you know, became at that time became interested in questions of, um, oral proficiency, um, and a little bit more specifically, um, oral fluency, right? And so, um, as I started researching, uh, these questions and this topic, um, it became clear to me that uh, we don't really have a good sense of uh, what oral fluency actually is, of mm. what it actually means to be a fluent speaker, right? Yeah. Um, there doesn't seem to be a clear consensus of how we define it. Um, there are a number of criteria uh, that can be used to sort of qualify it, right? But um, sort of in order to answer the general question, we would have to look at the confluence of like various, uh, mm -hmm. various different measurements. And then one of these measurements, uh, it turns out could be, uh, silent pausing, uh, silent pausing. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, essentially how many times does one, does a fluent speaker naturally hesitate 
um, in discourse, um, you know, which could be one of the things that are, again, indicative of uh, how fluency is being perceived. And of course, you know, you can um, measure that relatively easy, easily, uh, just collect a, uh, you know, speech sample, uh, put it on the computer, um, and then sort of, you know, manually look at the uh, waveform and mm-hmm. try to see where these, you know, pauses occur. Now, of course, you know, when you are uh, writing a thesis that sort of holistically looks at these things, you're dealing with a lot of speech samples. Um, mm-hmm. And <laughs> that is, uh, you know, at some point just stops being manageable to do by hand. Sure. Right. Um, and that is exactly what happened to me. So um, at that point, uh, th- th- I remember that was the first time when I seriously uh, started considering automating things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I looked at, OK, so how can we automate sort of extract this information um, about about pausing in these very sound samples I collected? I figure out how to um, write a script that does that automatically, which is like the first original, you know, piece of programming that I did. Um, and it also generated like a very rudimentary fluency score. Um, and, um, you know, that sort of already gives you an idea how, um, data quantitatively, quantitatively, uh, may be useful, um, in, you know, answering certain questions. I mean, maybe, you know, probably not giving you the full picture, uh, but bringing you, you know, closer, uh, to the truth, uh, so to speak. Um, and then there's, you know, other questions, um, that, um, you know, exist sort of on the side of the instruction as well as on the student side, um, that are, uh, likewise, uh, that could be, you know, answered, uh, with, uh, with, with, with the data, um, and, um, with sort of objective metrics. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So you just mentioned that um, in order to manage all of the data that you were working with, you wrote a script to automate some of the um, the processes. Can you give us the cliff's notes? If somebody is interested in creating a corpus, how do you do that? How do you go about that? And are there other reasons than automization for why one should create a corpus? Yeah, so... Um... Just like, so going back to, uh, to fluency, right? Just like there isn't uh, like a clear consensus of what fluency is, um, how we define it. Uh, it is really also, uh, pretty difficult to sort of give a clear definition of what a, what a corpus is. Mm. Um, I like to think of it as a collection of some language data of interest, uh, whether it's text, uh, audio files, maybe a combination of both, um, that is structured in a way that is um, helpful to achieve a particular goal, right? To, 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 to facilitate um, its use. And so, um, to you know, to give you a more concrete example, so um, one of the more recent recent projects um, that I developed that um, you know we can talk about later uh, required a required validation, mm-hmm. right? And so uh, I basically needed to see how how effective it is, how how well it works, and um, in order to validate it, um, I needed to use a 
corpus. Um, in this case, um, the corpus was very, very simple, very straightforward. Um, it was a list of about 100,000 German nouns that I scrapped from the web. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were all sort of dumped into one text file. And um, the way that, and so that kind of, you know, um, answers the question of what was in the corpus. Mm-hmm. Um, and now, in order for this collection of German nouns uh, to be useful um, for the validation purposes, uh, which was done automatically by a program, they needed to be structured in a, in a particular way, right? And so um, in this case, it was, they were all arranged as a list uh, that are all case folded, meaning lowercase across the board, um, one noun per line mm-hmm. going all the way down, right? Um, and, you know, this very simple text file uh, was a legitimate corpus structure in a particular way so as to uh, facilitate a specific goal that I had in mind when mm-hmm. putting it together, right? Um, so that's sort of on the one side. But then corpora um, can also be a lot more involved, a lot more structured. Um, there was um, another uh, corpus that I worked with for yet another project um, that was developed by... Um, Professor Nagi, Naomi Nagi, um, at the University of Toronto, and it is the um, Heritage, Language, Variation, and Change Corpus, um, which is a massive trove of data, both um, audio and text. It is a collection of interviews with heritage speakers um, across a number of languages with transcriptions, with a um, search capability, with all sorts of filters. Um, so, you know, in that case, that, that allows you to, um, you know, manipulate information, extract it, process it. Um, it has, you know, all sorts of functionality sort of baked into it. Hmm. Um, and, you know, it is likewise a, you know, valid collection of data, right? A valid, uh, valid corpus. Yeah. And the reason why we may, uh, we should be interested in looking at these things and then looking at the collection of uh, these collections of data, um, in addition to sort of, you know, building programs, um, is because um, I think that they really allow you to, um, look at the language um, in a very, uh, very objective way, um, a very insightful way, um, and you know, and find answers uh, to questions that um, oftentimes crop up in the language classroom that, that mm. don't really, um, you know, they're not really clearly stated or clearly defined in, in textbooks, and um, you know, sometimes um, are not really uh, very well, I don't know, answered by, by instructors. Um, so, yeah, I mean, they could be, you know, so for example, it could be things like, um, you know, looking at uh, common, I don't know, inflectional errors that are Mm -hmm. committed Mm -hmm. by heritage speakers, right? Or it could be uh, like patterns of collocations of English quantifiers, right? So, um, you know, we know by looking at corpus that uh, quantifiers such as a bunch of 
um, tend to collocate with mm. uh, expletives sure. in English more often <laughs> than, than not, right? Uh, and this is and this is not something that you know you will ever find in a textbook. Um, and this is definitely something that comes up when you look at a corpus, right? And so the question then becomes for you as a language instructor: Okay, uh, is this something I should be paying attention to? Is this something that is useful? Should I, uh, you know, let my students know about that, right? Um, and if so, like, how should I let my students know about that? How should I draw their attention to this? How should I then, you know, structure mm-hmm. my materials to that effect, and so on and so forth? Nice. Yeah. Well, so just to, to follow up on part of that, you talked about the corpus of German nouns that you assembled. You developed a learning aid to explain grammatical gender assignment in German around that corpus. So please tell us about that learning aid and for the non-German speakers among us, how to pronounce it, <laughs> how to pronounce its name. Oh, yeah, I, I don't know how to pronounce it. Yeah. <laughs> Trick question. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, uh, there, there's, there's no corpus answer to this. Um, I pronounce it... <laughs> I I pronounce it as a genucidator. Um, I I kind of spelled it out phonetically as a day as in Monday and ter genucidator. Um, I don't know, Angelica. How would you pronounce it? Well, I mean, if you if you take the German word genusidator, but that mm-hmm. it, I'm not sure. It's funny because it also reminds me of genus. You know, rather than mm-hmm. genus, and that's kind of cool mm-hmm. because I mean, genus is gender, and genus is um, what is genus, Simon? Usage, right? Well, oh, um, no, no, usage, no, 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 like the, uh, like the pleasure enjoyment. of enjoyment. Yes, yes, yes. There we go. So the yeah. enjoyment dater uh, <laughs> of gender. Yes. Yeah, gender enjoyment. Not safe for work. Okay, I need to I need to rebrand this. <laughs> <laughs> so uh so what is this thing? Why did I why did I build it? Um so I am not a native speaker of German. Um I had to learn it as a uh, foreign language. Uh I started learning it in high school um and sort of um stuck with it through undergrad and then grad school. Um, always been really good at it. I always liked it. It made sense to me, um, except for the articles. Uh, mm. That was the sole thing mm. that um, I could not wrap my mind around. And it was just, uh, it, yeah, it, it was, it was just confounding and, um, like I said, it didn't make any sense. And so, um, as students, uh, you know, we are also we're also we're always told, uh, or at least I was, um, that uh, the articles. Um, so, um, so articles in German um, correspond to the grammatical gender of of the noun, right? So, uh, so German has uh, three genders: uh, masculine, feminine, and neuter. And these surface in the language um, as an article, either definite or indefinite. We also have articles in English. An example of a definite article would be the. An example of an indefinite article would be a or an. When I was learning uh, the language, I still am learning the language. Um, it, there didn't seem to be any sort of rules, any rhyme or reason as to why certain nouns are a certain gender, why do they have these or this article or not some other article. 
the longer I've been thinking about it, the more it became uh, clear to me there's got to be a better way to, um, you know, to, to, to acquire um, this knowledge than just memorizing it, right? That there, mm. There's got to be some rules um, undergirding this, this system. And as I was researching it, um, I came across sort of two approaches. On the one hand side, uh, you could look at um, the the morphology of the word um, and here or the noun. And here I mean um, its affixes. So either its suffix or its prefixes, um, because as it turns out, certain uh, certain uh, mostly suffixes prefer certain genders and certain articles more than others. So, for mm-hmm. example, uh, like we know that uh, German words that end in uh, letter E or A, um, as it is pronounced, uh, tend to be overwhelmingly feminine. I mean, like 98%, right, of them. Uh, and, you know, these sort of regularities occur uh, with various suffixes, sometimes with prefixes. Um, so there was one cue for me. Another one was... Um, sort of more of a semantic nature, I ran into uh, research that uh, tried to figure out how genders are assigned to nouns based on what these nouns mean, right? So um, like we know that most celestial bodies in German are uh, masculine, right? We also know that alcohols are um, masculine as well, uh, except for beer, um, we also know uh, we also know that things that are related to hunting uh, tend to be feminine, you know, so things like that. And um, there are rules and rules, um, you know, pages and pages of these rules, uh, which I uh, went through. And um, very diligent of you. I like that. Very yeah. uh, yes, very, very German. Yes. And I. Uh, <laughs> I didn't need to is all, yes. all that matters. <laughs> so, yeah, so I, I went through these rules, you know, our, I compiled them. I uh, wrote code uh, that sort of, um, you know, formalized them. And then I used them to develop a program that uh, given a noun and uh, given its gender, Sort of, ex- sort of attempts to um, use these rules to explain why this noun takes this specific specific gender, mm-hmm. and you know, um, and so okay, great. So how well does this thing work? Well, um, you know, it turns out that it is not entirely terrible. Um, so when it comes to its accuracy, in other words, how well these rules describe this the specific gender assignment of interest. Um, the rules that are morphological in nature, so where, you know, we look at the prefixes and suffixes, um, account for 74% of, you know, accurate guesses. So in other words, out of, you know, 100 nouns, uh, 74 of these nouns are going to be guessed correctly, um, solely based on the, um, on the endings or, or the prefixes. Um, on the other hand, the the whole you know semantic uh, thing, where different you know groups or types of nouns uh, tend to take different genders, uh, that doesn't that is not very very effective. Um, there is very little sort of uh, mileage that um, I was able to get out of that. 
Um, so, uh, you know, when it comes to um, the rules and the explanation generated by this program, um, if I were a student or an instructor for the matter, um, I would be, you know, paying more attention to the morphology than the semantics, right? But one way or the other, um, you know, now with these rules in hand, right, uh, you are able to see, okay, that this specific noun is this gender, uh, probably most likely because uh, it has this ending or it has this prefix, right? Um, which, you know, I think is useful. And uh, honestly, I could wish that I had that kind of, you know, learning aid when I was studying mm. the language. Hmm. Nice. Yeah. Just have to figure out exactly how to pronounce the name of this wonderful mm. learning aid. I like it. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a marketing issue. Ah, I see. Yeah, well, you got to get your team on that then. So, Simon, what are some other beneficial uses of Corpora for language teachers and language learners other than, I mean, you mentioned useful collocations, um, figuring out grammatical features. Are there other things that um, are great uses for Corpora? So starting with students, um, what the, the, the thing that first comes to mind is uh, machine translation. Uh, mm -hmm. which is something that students uh, use on a regular basis. And, of course, you know, when you think of machine translation, you think Google Translate. Uh, now, of course, uh, as ubiquitous as and, and universal um, as uh, Google Translate is, um, it has a pretty steep learning curve, in my opinion, because mm -hmm. um, you, generally speaking, when you, input, you, know, when you input a, a, a word, um, it will generate a translation. But, of course, you know, that if you don't know if that translation is correct or not. Um, sure. There may be right. There may be a number of translations uh, that are equally correct, and unless you uh, know, already know the language well enough, uh, you you're you're just guessing. I mean, it's, it's and this goes sort of back to uh, you know what Chomsky said about dictionaries in general that they're by and large useless unless you already <laughs> know the language. Mm. Um, so. Um, Okay, so should we then tell our students not to use Google Translate? Well, not really. I mean, we can, but they're not going to listen. They're still going to be, you know, translating uh, using that technology or using machine translation in general. Um, so is there a better way to do it? And I think this is um, something where corpora could be useful mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, if we can imagine a technology that uh, not only generates a translation of a specific word, but also shows you how that translation works in a sentence, in authentic oh. context, and that being juxtaposed against um, the original word being translated and how that works in a specific context, mm. right? And there is a tool that does that for you. Um, it is called Lingue, uh, Ling uh, U double E, um, and it is a, a machine translation technology that does precisely that. So, um, you know, it works on single words uh, where you, you know, whatever word you input, it will generate an addition translation, its usage in an authentic corpora whenever possible, which is more often than not. Um, so I think, you know, this is something that uh, is generally super helpful to students, even if they may not necessarily understand the the entirety of the mm -hmm. lexical context. Sure. Um, you know, they may still see it, uh, you know, maybe look at this and maybe try to translate the sentence as well. 
Um, so I think uh, for the purpose of contextualization, um, it, it, it is fantastic. Um, and then, um, of course, you know, for instructors, uh, well, these database, corporate-based tools, um, are you know, we've likewise been using them, especially uh, for the past you know couple months with uh, the full assault of uh, generative. <laughs> text mm-hmm. models. I mean, these are based on, you know, multi-billion word corpora. Yep. That's, mm-hmm. that's, that's, that's what they are. Yep. Um, <clears throat> but um, to perhaps uh, present a more, you know, specific um, example, there is a project um, that I um, developed um, that looks at uh, heritage language writing. And um, specifically in Polish. So um, the uh, the program um, takes a a written sample, um, written composed either by a heritage or a non heritage learner of uh, Polish in this case, mm-hmm. um, and then classifies it accordingly with a certain degree of um, uh, of accuracy, right? Um, this program is, um, it's, you know, it's available on my GitHub. It can be downloaded, used. Um, this pretty accurate, uh, but it, it was developed and built based on a corpus of heritage and non-heritage uh, written samples, right? Um, and this is something that is, uh, of, that was of interest, still is of interest to our instructor of Polish. Uh, but it turns out that there is a need for uh, something similar in our Spanish language program uh, that has a lot of heritage speakers, a lot of mm-hmm. incoming heritage sure. speakers, and where um, sort of this uh, initial um, diagnosis, right, this diagnostic uh, between that would allow professors uh, or they would allow the program administrators to differentiate right from the get-go between heritage and non-heritage speakers like that would be very helpful for them uh, that would save them you know a lot of time um, unfortunately I don't speak Spanish um, so uh, this is something that would be um, a little bit difficult for me to develop but um, you know that would be a good example of um, of how uh, corpora and how data um, can be used by instructors. Oh, here's another good thing when it comes to writing. So um, when we think about uh, written proficiency and how our students are uh, most likely to uh, to write um, in the authentic context, um, you know, what comes to, immediately comes to mind is texting. Um, it's sure. things like Reddit. Um, it's yeah. you know, perhaps gaming, chatting, right? Uh, so... Uh, instantaneous computer-mediated communication, um, which is, you know, profoundly different um, from regular composition, uh, which is something that, uh, you know, tends to be emphasized in more traditional language classrooms. Um, Now, of course, I am not necessarily familiar with um, a lot of teaching materials that includes um, samples of, you know, texting discourse or authentic online discourse, right, Um, which the exposure to which would be, I suspect, very helpful um, to our students and, 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 and for instructors as well when thinking about how to uh, build useful curricula. Uh, but again, there are corpora out there um, that collect this information. And um, for instance, um, you know, at, 
the last IELTS conference I participated in this presentation uh, where a student, a graduate student from uh, UC Davis was presenting her project on uh, computer media communication and texting uh, in Spanish. Um, and she was looking at how um, that, you know, instantaneous communication may um, impact uh, spoken proficiency, right? So again, she put together a corpus on her own. She collected data, she structured it, um, and she's using it to uh, to look into these things and to answer um, these, uh, you know, very, uh, very specific questions. There's a lot that you're working on um, and it's fascinating. So we want to know what's next for you and, and where can people find out more about the work that you're doing? Sure. Uh, so, I mean, I look forward to the upcoming academic year at Columbia. Uh, you know, we do have uh, pretty ambitious plans uh, in store for our faculty. Mm -hmm. uh, the center is currently undergoing uh, reorganization and uh, there's exciting changes in place. So, I'm looking forward to that. Um, there are some innovative projects um, that I've been uh, consulting and, and, and working on with our faculty. Uh, there's a really cool project on uh, that uses uh, spatial scaffolding. So, mm -hmm. so not corpora, but um, also computer assisted language learning related, and it does that to see if uh, you know we can use. Um, the fact that we can leverage the fact that our brains are mostly wired for spatial processing to mm. uh, to teach grammar um, and to specifically to teach uh, well not to teach grammar but also uh, in, in the context of prepositional semantics. So mm. uh, when looking to that, uh, there's also a project that uh, looks at uh, ways of incorporating automated speech recognition uh, to and pronunciation feedback uh, in in uh, Mandarin Chinese. Um, so uh, that's something that I'm involved in as well. Um, excited stuff, exciting stuff. Um, and yeah, my, you know, my, my graduate work, I'm going to sure. be taking more courses this upcoming year. Mm -hmm. uh, I am looking forward to uh, doing more uh, nitty gritty machine learning and uh, learning uh, the, learning more about the math behind it. So mm -hmm. um that's sort of uh, coming up for me in the in the next months. Nice. Um, and then, yeah, people, where can people find out more about me? Um, I, I do have a website, uh, zubrek.net. Uh, so my last name, .net, uh, pretty simple to remember, which kind of uh, contains everything. So uh, everything I do, I just, you know, throw it there. Uh, there are links to uh, our YouTube channel, there are links to my presentation, slides, code, uh, you know, it sort of aggregates everything. Uh, so go there if you uh, want to learn more. I also have links to various social media uh, channels. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'll just leave it at that because that really will, can, that really does contain everything. Absolutely. And we'll make sure to link to that in our show notes. Simon, this was wonderful. I think we could keep talking forever. But we will just make sure that everybody who's interested in your work goes to your website, checks out GitHub, and um, you are presenting at Actful 2023. So if anybody mm -hmm. oh, is yes, there, that's right. I'll be there. Mm -hmm. yeah, make sure that you check out Simon's presentation there. Um, before we sign off, though, we would like to ask you to share a word in a language that you speak, you love, you are learning, you want to learn 
that does not exist in English, but that you wish it did? Let's hear it. Okay. Um, well, I guess the <laughs> Ganusa data is already taken. So. <laughs> <laughs> that, that already exists, though. I, oh, I yes, put yes, it there. It does. Yeah. So, <laughs> you've coined it. Yes. I coined it. Um, no, but there's a, there's a word um, that... Uh, there's a word they wanted to they wanted to share. I was thinking about a little bit. Um, so a lot of the work um, that um, I do on uh, corpora with uh, with data, um, I do on a operation uh, an operating system. Um, I'm sorry. A lot of the work that I do is done on a version of the Linux um, operating system uh, that is named Ubuntu. Mm-hmm. And uh, some of you may have, may have heard uh, about that. It is happens to be, I think, the most popular distribution of Linux uh, available out there. Um, and um, you know, even though looking at that name uh, pretty much daily, I never really bothered uh, figuring out what it means. And um, until um, I did in preparation for this, uh, or coincidentally to this podcast, and it translates into "I find my worth in you." And you find your worth in me. Huh. And Fascinating. I think it, we could think of it as just a really like, super uh, rough translation as human kindness. Huh. Um, and I wish that a word like that existed huh. in English. Yeah, mm-hmm. that would, uh, I, I would take that. I would use that. Very good. What's the, do you know, what's the, uh, the origin of the word? It's from Gunibantu. Okay. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for speaking of language with us today, Simon. That's a great note to end on. Thank you. It's been great. It's been a fun conversation. Next week, we will speak with Dr. Kathy Bauman. Dr. Bauman recently gave a talk as part of our monthly LRC speaker series, and we will extend our conversation on reverse design and its role in curricular and programmatic articulation. Until then, Auf Wiederhören! The Language Resource Center is located on the ground floor of Stimson Hall on Cornell's main campus in Ithaca, New York. Check us out on the web at lrc.cornell.edu or follow Cornell LRC on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Speaking of Language is produced by Angelica Kramer and Sam Lupowitz. Recorded by Sam Lupowitz. Original music by Sam Lupowitz, Dan Gable, and Joe Gibson. Thanks also to the College of Arts and Sciences at Cornell University. As a reminder, the ideas and opinions expressed on this podcast do not reflect those of the College of Arts and Sciences or any other official entity of Cornell University. We thank our listeners and do stay tuned for our next episode.